Hi everyone, welcome to our Decolonial Perspectives and Practices Hub podcast, where we explore potential methods to decolonize our classrooms and learning environments. We launched this series as part of an initiative with BEST Concordia. In this episode, we're continuing our conversation with media practitioner and artist researcher Prakash Krishnan from Do The Kids Know. Today we're talking about Instagram as a tool of community building and organizing and exploring visual culture as a medium for empowerment. This is part two of the fourth episode. The idea of visual media or like the visual arts um, as a, and, and also um, podcasts as the ability to change narratives, how do you capture everyday empowerment and privilege of brown and black people? Because we know we capture like the everyday oppressions, we know we capture the everyday inequalities. But like brown and black people listening, how do we capture our privilege and our power? Do we have privilege and power? Yeah, and I think it's really easy for people who live on any kind of axis of marginalization to feel like, okay, it's not my job to do any of this work of making you know, society better because society is the one who they've done me wrong, right? And I think I have felt this way many times, sometimes I still do, like, you know, the work, quote unquote, like, you know, the capital T, capital W, like the work TM is hard, right? It is tiring. I understand all this. And at the same time, a lot of the structures that oppress us and oppress people in general also benefit us, particularly as people who are non-Indigenous, living within a settler colonial state in which we are not you know, people who are indigenous to this continent, affords us a lot of privileges just by fact of like not being victimized and oppressed by the legacies of like the Indian Act and of uh, settler colonialism. And speaking to on behalf of like non-black POCs, also not being black is a way in which we are afforded privilege through white supremacy, especially Asians and South Asians, because this has been a tool of the model minority myth that we have used to try to propel ourselves, you know, to attain upward class mobility by being like, hello, white people, like, please let us have things, let us vote, let us marry, let us do things, because at least we are not like that, right? Like that being uh, Black people. And it's really easy to forget all these when your own life is difficult. And I think that this is like the same rhetoric for why there's so much like xenophobia, Islamophobia, especially from people like white folks who live in like rural parts of Canada, where like there's not enough work for me to support myself and my family. Why are we bringing in like 25,000 refugees, right? It, does, it doesn't make sense. I, un- I understand like why you feel this way. But when you actually like look and do the research and see at other places that have that have had mass like refugee and migrant populations moving in, actually the entire area develops better, like economically, socially. Everyone in the long run is actually better for this. But these are not the messages that are actually being relayed by the media, by news, like by the governments, governments even. So I think it does take kind of like an aspect of either altruism or selflessness to be like it will gain me nothing to use my platform to say hello, fellow non-Black people. We need to stand up for Black Lives Matter. Okay, We need to support our like Black brothers and sisters and uh, non-binary 
friends and family to do this work because through Black resurgence, like we will all be free, right? And this is like a very difficult message for people to understand sometimes because they're just interested in like taking care of themselves. And I get that, you know, often if you are a person of color living in this country, like you are probably a victim of trauma. It probably doesn't feel like it matters that you have education because your life is so hard, but the fact that you're able to, you know, have education or maybe have upper class mobility if you are temporarily non-disabled uh, or temporarily able-bodied, if you, uh, I don't know, even things like small things, you know, if you like have a car, if you like have a steady income, even if it's small, if you have a supportive family, if you have like, there's so many ways that you can have power and privilege that it's not based on your identity as either uh, a person of color or based on your gender sexuality. And yeah, you know, if you really, if you are really about that life, you know, if you posted that black square, if you like posted a black and white photo of yourself because you were, you know, in support of, uh, or like, you know, trying to like denounce femicide in, uh, in Turkey, then you need to also like step up and do this work, you know, within your circles to say, okay, like what, where, like, yes, we all know that we have oppression, but where are my axes of privilege, right? And like me, I talk a lot. Okay, I know that people listen to me. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, let me just use my voice in this area. Okay, I have the time, <laughs> I have this opportunity to have a free education. Let me learn all these things and then let me deliver that knowledge in a way that people who are not academically trained in critical race studies or law or politics or whatever can still understand, you know, these facets of life that continue to govern them, you know, behind the scenes. Yeah, you know, it's, I think it's like really, I understand why it's tough for people to into that mindset that you have privilege even if you are like poor and white or when you share access of access of privilege and underrepresentation or marginalization but yeah you know it's work that we all have to do you know none of us are innocent in this you know either you were like working against it or you're complicit or you can be both and that's a really complicated place to be but if you don't try to make things better for everyone uh and you only are trying to work on yourself like you are part of the problem I think that's awesome. And I, I just think that it's so important to discuss the different aspects of complexity within the QT BIPOC communities, especially in regards to complicity, but also just when you understand that we're not all homogeneous, then it's the first step for coalition building. And I just hear how it's so powerful to mobilize people through words. And then when I think about you as an expert in the visual arts, then I'm thinking more complexly without words, how do you capture images of empowerment, QT BIPOC empowerment? Because we know we see it in protests, but are there other ways to capture images of coalition building or mobilize coalition through images and without words? And then what would that look like? Mm -hmm. Yeah, recently I've seen some really good examples on Instagram. Uh, Instagram, I love it. Thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's so good. Honestly, we can have a whole other episode on Instagram because I just like, I mean, it's bad. Like, it is bad, but also it can be so good uh, for its, uh, you know, alternative, like, underground uses. And this is also part of my thesis research, actually, when I'm, like, looking at, yeah, the ways, like, South Asian coalition groups are, like, using Instagram to mobilize specific imagery as a form of like diasporic and like transnational community building. For me, it has been so powerful seeing like historical images from like the 20s onwards of South Asians who migrated either forcibly or voluntarily to the West 
America, Canada, and the UK, and have been involved in solidarity organizing. How, like, in the UK, uh, I might be butchering the years, but I believe it's been, like around the 80s, where the idea of being Black was not tied to an African ancestry or tied to a specific like, coloration of your skin, but it was a political identity as people who were, yeah, you know, like racialized and like depoliticized and depowered within the English economy, uh, within English society. And so you see South Asians and, you know, like South Asian women in their saris, like alongside what we would call today Black women, fighting in solidarity for labor rights. And I'm like, this is amazing to see legacies of people who look like me who are doing this work that feels new in 2020, they're doing this work 40 years ago. That is, mm. that's amazing, you know? And it's so easy to forget these histories, to forget that we come from an ancestry of people fighting for their freedoms, fighting for better working conditions, for better living conditions. And that this idea of like a solidarity politic, a solidarity, solidarity organizing, is not new that we have we have like you know been doing this even within countries like India where like people might all like you know from the surface like look the same if you're not trained to like look at kind of like, ethnic and cultural differences the way is that <clears throat> there have been legacies of cross caste solidarity cross uh, religious solidarities and political organizing like these are so important to see in 2020 and sure you could read like a 400 page scholarly book about it. And I think that's great and probably gives you a lot more nuance and historical context to what was going on during that time. But for me, even just seeing those images, like have so much power, because in that, you know, pictures is a thousand words, like this is, I feel this is true. I can look at this and be like, wow, you know, like that could be like my auntie or like my grandma, like doing this work and here I am also doing this work. And I feel like I'm part of something that is, that is greater than just, you know, greater than myself, greater than this, like, one stagnant moment in history, that this is part of something, yeah, it's part of something bigger and um, important. I feel like there's so many things that you covered, and it all, like, circles back to, like, previous notions that we had talked about, but, and what you're saying, I'm here also, it's called, like, photojournalism, and it's taking me back to, as you're seeing, snapping those very powerful images as a testimony that's also journalistic, and um, sharing, you know, lots of difficult truths that are not institutionally recognized. And as you're saying, we're mobile, we're using the mobile digitalities to perpetuate those anti-colonial legacies of resistance from our ancestors that also operated in cross-people allyships, and it's not new. But now it's like recycling new form of media for old form of anti-colonial legacies. And I feel there's so many layers to that, right? Because it also brings us back into this intergenerational like alliances where we're here, we're part of the older millennials or whatever category we are put into. And yet the work that we do through those images, it anchors us into like a continuity as opposed to feeling like we're so special, you know, that <laughs> we're the first. And because we're so keen on relanguaging a lot of things, sometimes the relanguaging erases the legacy because now we have the impression that we are the starting point of a conversation that is centuries in the making. And I love, as you're saying, talking about to, like the nuance and saying working against the system and also being complicit in the system. I feel that's an area that is under challenge and underdeveloped, particularly in activistic circles, because a lot of folks like to believe that they're like they have the higher ground, you know, in terms of like moral standing, and it's not true. And it's another way that we're decolonizing yourself like halfway. 
you know, the parts mm -hmm. of us that are pretty much protective of the system. And I love how you said that it gives privileges as much as it gives us under privileges at once. And a lot of people don't want to locate themselves in that very interesting dynamic binary of I'm heightened and enhanced in certain ways and I'm diminished in others. I feel those are like the nuances that we want um, you know, to look into more of. And again, going back to your previous comment about everyday empowerment of BIPOC, it's so powerful because more often than not, what's captured is tragedy. And it's make us seem that our identity is rooted in tragic events and that we're like victimized through self-identities. You know, but there is a way to again recognize the extent to which that applies, but also to counterbalance that with something that's so much more like positive and forward going and using visual cultures to communicate. All of that is great. And I was thinking, you know, um, you're saying how an image is so powerful. And I'm thinking again of how we can bridge this back to academia and its structural deficiencies. You know, what about using, you know, those different underground culture, culture, insurgents groups on Instagram, and then, you know, use that as a framework and then use academia as a support to that as opposed to it being the starting point. Because I feel there are many ways to hybridize and to bridge the gaps. Um, and I see a lot of possibilities in the work that you're sharing with us. So it's just a bunch of layers. And I'm thinking we met with Coco, like there's this um, incredible group of affiliate independent co-facilitators doing anti-oppression work. They talk about this image of like, um, I'm probably gonna mess it up, but it's like of a triangle, I think. And it's about us carrying voices that are not just our own, but voices from our grandparents, our ancestors, our community. And I see in what you're describing on Instagram as another way to do that, like an imagery that brings us back into the legacy, but also into a different register of voices and how we are part of those voices and how we're also unique. So I feel there are many, many different beautiful layers and about like visual culture, uh, insurgents, Instagram. <laughs> Instagram. <laughs> Instagram. Yeah, I mean, totally. Like everything you said, you know, it's so easy, I think, especially now in these COVID times to feel disconnected. And podcasting, yeah, I, 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 you know, I clearly think it's a great medium, but truly the conversations only go one way. You know, I rant for things into a microphone and then it goes out into the world and my friends sometimes are like that's a great episode thanks and I'm like you're welcome and that's kind of, and that's kind of it it's not really you know a dialogue between the audience and uh, myself and Kristen the two the two hosts and, it, and I guess also visual cult like you know just images by themselves also has that where like you are just the audience of the image and there's not really the opportunity for a two-way interaction but, which is why I really, really enjoy Instagram, because now you do have the option for conversation, right? So if you comment under a photo, maybe the poster of said photo or the photographer or whoever might not reply to you, but you're, you're replying into a public forum in which you can start discussing with other people, right, who are also drawn to this photo for like various reasons. It could be, I'm particularly drawn by photojournalism, but it could be a meme it could be a TikTok video, it could be anything, right? Like, visual culture can be, like, you know, really teased apart to be almost anything you see on Instagram. I think the ways that we use, you know, like a photo, an image-based platform like Instagram to do these kinds of, like, community networking, right? Like, the way that I, like, especially Instagram stories, I love, like, hard I reacting to all my friends' stories or, like, the applause emojis or whatever, or just, like, 
you know, it is a way to facilitate dialogue and facilitate communication. And I have made so many friends in quarantine through Instagram story communication, <laughs> like people who I maybe met like once or twice in real life. And I'm like, oh, these stories are so interesting or so fun or like so cute. Like I want to get to know you more. And I think that's like, this really opens up the possibilities for us to do different kinds of organizing that are not so sad, <laughs> if that makes sense, right? And I think online activism, or you know, like some people like to call it selectivism, and I think that there can be an aspect to that if all you're doing is like liking photos, but not taking them anywhere further. Is that effective? You know, maybe in terms of the algorithm, I don't know. That's, I'm, not, I'm not really in that kind of platform scholar, but there are lots of ways we can repurpose the infrastructures that we have now for more radical aims. And I think that this is something that the university could be pushing further. I think sometimes we like get glimpses of these like radical possibilities. It might be like, you know, one week of one course, you know, in one year of your degree where you talk about like the dark web and that's kind of it, but it exists and then that's, that's it. But I'm like, okay, what if we push this further, right? Like what if, what if we actually like learned how to use the dark web to do like more radical organizing that might be flagged if we did it on public on Instagram. Like for instance, recently was, I believe, the Tamil Day of Remembrance, um, commemorating the supposed end of the Sri Lankan Civil War, when there were like hundreds of thousands of Tamil people who were either like missing or massacred. And Instagram was flagging and removing photos of people who posted flags, who posted um, like solidarity photos for the people who who were either missing or murdered, that is messed up, you know? Like, because I think that's all we learn in school is to like use what we have and like, use, like work within the structures that we have. I've had a number of classes where like people's final projects were like making a podcast or like making an Instagram account. And I think that that is fine. That, that does have its uses, but there's so much more that we could do. And if these people who are teaching us are the supposed experts in these fields, like take it all the way, you know, take it all the way, especially Concordia as a school that likes to, you know, uh, pose itself as being this kind of like radical place of learning. And I think like at least between the two, the two schools I went to, yeah, Concordia does feel the most progressive. But then I also feel that I hit a lot of walls where I'm like, I should not be the most radical person between me and this professor who, I don't know, like maybe is like a critical race scholar, right? If I'm telling you, that you, that the way that you talk about Serena Williams is sexist and racist, that is a problem, <laughs> you know? Like, I should, not be, I should not be coming correct to you. That is your job. You should be correcting me. Ugh, academia, pros and cons. <laughs> <laughs> That's a perfect closing statement, like, academia. <laughs> <laughs> uh, honestly, it's, a, it's like such a big side because I'm like, it is, it offers so much and at the same time, it is yeah. like such a frustrating system within which to work. For mm -hmm. sure. Yeah, a lot of politics too. So actually, in our work, like uh, Cheslin was mentioning, we like we we've had many discussions with professors who seem to want to be better in terms of working on anti-oppressive classrooms and all these things. Uh, but every time it's like trying to have these awkward conversations or letting those awkward conversations happen, it creates a lot of fear that they're going to get more criticism and that they're going to get called out or that they're going to cause harm and all these um yeah all these fears and uh, yeah with the political, political climate i would even say that like people are terrified right now having these conversations <laughs> so what what advice could we give to like or in your experience 
that you since you've had these conversations in different settings like how could we reassure or uh, like encourage maybe some tips to <clears throat> approach this especially with the younger people that we want to empower so that we keep that empowerment going and not think that it's actually going to bring more or maybe that the criticism it might bring is actually okay you know so i don't mm -hmm. know how if you have any tips on that or experiences to share where that could help kind of ease into these conversations yeah i think this is like particularly challenging of experience especially if you are an undergraduate student speaking to a professor who you know could be a lecturer could be a tenure professor in between because i don't think that you are made to believe that you have knowledge experience expertise agency as a student in this context I think this is a little bit different as a graduate student where you, especially with the small classes, you might know your professor a little more intimately. So there's maybe a little bit more room for back and forth. But I think in undergrad, this is like a particularly difficult. Something I've been trying to do in my role as a TA for like various courses has been to be like, okay, like, because they're like the courses I've worked on have all been like kind of in the creative side, you know, really reiterating to students that I'm gonna help guide you to like polish your product, but like you are the expert in your own life, in your own experience. You have lived a life that I have not lived. I don't know you like that. So really like bring in your own unique expertise into your work. And you know, if it's an essay, I can tell you, okay, you missed a comma or like whatever, you know, grammar, syntax, structure, like that's great. But the core content, like that is, that is you. And like no one can take that away from you. If the professor is like trying to push back and you feel like you should still, you should always be open to critique, like, you know, professors are also there to guard you. But sometimes if you're trying to take it to a more radical place mm -hmm. and your professor or instructor is inhibiting your growth, the kind of like the chaotic areas in me is like, do whatever you want, <laughs> you know, just, just do it. You know, like, what are they going to do? Like, do it, <laughs> do it. School doesn't matter. Great, doesn't matter. Just do it, do it. But I think these can also, yeah, like be teachable moments also, like for, for people who are in higher positions of power. They may not take it very well. It might be awkward. It probably will be awkward. It's hard to me where it has been awkward, <laughs> you know, telling this professor that the way I don't appreciate the way you talk about Serena Williams, you know, questionable. But I, th I think people know, you know, and like, I think there's some people who are, you, you can tell are like open and like willing to hear you. Other people are not. I would say like push it a little bit, like see what the feedback is. If you're hitting a brick wall, maybe just leave it, like do what you need to do to get through this assignment, this course, this year, this program, whatever. But if you feel that you're pushing and the wall is like spongy, then keep pushing, you know, like this could be like a small step towards paving the way for better opportunities for the people who come after you. Like you never know what the impacts of the actions will be. And I think that's been kind of my own personal political ethos where I'm like, I'm just gonna say all these things, scream into the void, try to mentor folks. And, you know, I might not ever see the results of the work that I did in my lifetime. You know, I might never know but I like have faith in something in the Zodiac that like, you know, one day someone will remember something I said and like do something to help someone else and the sort of pay for mentality. Like, I think that's all, uh, I think that's all I can hope to do with these, like within these like awkward confrontations, interactions, conflicts, 
whether or not that's at school, at your work, with your family. Yeah, you never know the impact of your actions. So just keep having the actions. I love just that advice to just keep pushing, especially despite constraints, especially for undergraduate students. Because I feel like, especially in the academy, when we do experience that professor that puts us down or that assignment that doesn't let us do what we want to do, some people stop there. And they're like, okay, you know what? There's no point, the academy, da, da, da. But when I really think about the work that you're doing, I think about the hub, I think about all these other initiatives, from students, they all came from that moment of feeling constrained and we didn't stop. We decided to create something new. And so I definitely would just keep, I would just keep saying that louder and louder to everyone listening that you don't have to stop there. If you can't be radical in your assignments, I say do it, be radical as much as you can, but if you can't do it, then you can do it in other mediums, join different initiatives and, and push forward. And also learn how to be radical in your assignments. I know like, for example, like, Cheslin, like she does some crazy stuff with her work in regards to like repurposing and relanguaging. Like get connected with people who know how to do these things in a way that can like lend um, transformation. And so I was gonna say too, what I love it, which you're saying and circling back to Jamila's comment is I love how you phrased it. We know as an undergrad, particularly you're made to believe it's not true that you don't have agency or expertise. Mm -hmm. So that's one key element. The other thing is like recognizing this was a, um, the kind of like dichotomy between content and form. Like the content is the era of um, area of supreme expertise of the student and form is your negotiation with the institution for your piece of work to get due recognition. And that's where you want to collaborate with an ally or a partner like a prof because you're versed in the stylistics, you know, the stylistics of like the language of the institution, but you bring the core. And to go back to what Jamila is saying, I feel that you can be radical in many ways. You can be radical in content or in form or both, but you don't have to choose. And so don't expect like to have, you know, like unicorns and like welcoming you and that's not the point, but like to also have people know how to deal with resistance in a way that does not demotivate them. Like you're supposed to be challenged and challenges enhance your own power. But a lot of folks don't see like, wait, like they want to, you know, to run away. And I will add to your point that when you hit on a spongy wall, then you have, use it as a springboard so that now you can know how to deal with that wall, know that you are hitting against. Because there's always a way to pivot, but lots of folks, they quit before they learn how to pivot. And a lot of scientists and inventors, they tell you, like, you're supposed to fail forward. You know, and people say it's academic suicide. No, look at the props, let's say, that you have and look at the one that is the spongiest then you go to that person to do your experimentation and then you repurpose your insights so that the other walls can become sponges again. Because I feel it's a kind of resilience through creativity that we're missing. And like Jamila is saying, is to find people that already have access to that intelligence so that now you can be empowered and pass it forward. Because we always in a cohort, we're gonna have a few people who are gonna do that, but then that information is not shared. So when they're gone of the institution, like the cycle recommend, like begins all over again. Mm -hmm. So I mm -hmm. feel it's that, you know, those going back to what you said, like those core miss, like pieces were missing. They're so critical and also so simple. But anyway, you spin it, it's a loss, your education to go there and to be like a bystander to colonialism. Like there's no gain in that, you know, passing is a privilege, but it's not a power in terms of, you know, helping you out as a person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. And if you're someone who is, you know, in school for like an arts degree, like fine arts or uh, liberal arts or something that's maybe not STEM, 
your grades like don't really matter if you're like not trying to go to grad school. Even if you are trying to go to grad school, your grades, you know, there's a lot of like room for that. What's really important is like the work that you do, that you come out with a better understanding of yourself, of your capabilities, of maybe like your creative potential, of your critical potential, that you come out with skills because the university is not gonna set you up to like find employment. It is not gonna set you up to be radical, uh, but what it does afford is opportunities for those things, right? You like go to school, you network, you like talk to people, you join clubs, associations, volunteer if you can, find like interesting part-time jobs, internships, those things and like being with your peers is going to radicalize you more so than just the work in the classroom itself. And if your professor reading this, listen to this as well, like the same thing, if you think that like, because you read all these books, because you are a doctor or you have a doctorate, because you work in university, therefore you are done learning and that these students who may be 18 years old, don't have anything to share with you. You are like wildly mistaken. This is like a very ignorant position. If you are too scared to talk about things that you don't know, give me your job. (laughs) 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 So passionate. (laughs) Just gonna break my mind. Give me your job. Like I promise you, I can Google the night before class. I can like read that book that you were supposed to assign and I will like, you know, I will figure it out. Yeah. That should be your job as an educator is to do the work. Okay. You cannot be comfortable sitting pretty at your desk with your degree that you have not worked on in 45 years. You need to keep it pushing. Like the same way you're telling your students to like, you know, push the envelope of like academic achievement. You need to do that too. It's just too easy to be complacent within the structure of the university, you know? And if university is a route that you want to go down, I don't think it's for everyone. It may have not been for me. And yet, uh, you know, I forced myself to do it because I thought that was, you know, what had to be done. Make it, make it work for you. This is, no one education's, this is no one's education but your own. And uh, don't let anyone, you know, like crusty wall professor stop you from achieving your truest potential and creative freedom. Yeah, take over their jobs. (laughs) (laughs) Give me your job. (laughs) Or like, you know, give me some dollars and I'll come and talk to your class about like uh, anti-racism or something. You know, I'm available. (laughs) Do the kids know (laughs) gmail.com. So I guess professors should be like more scared of activists taking their jobs rather than having that conversation in class. <laughs> <laughs> yes, only, you know, like also professors, you know, advocate for like activists and residents in your department. That way you could have someone like me work in your department, have institutional support and like do the work that your students are like begging for. You know, yeah. there are options that like other schools are doing or even if it's a new idea, like push that forward. I understand there's a, a lot of red tape. To start that work early. There are so many possibilities with the money. Put that forward towards something that is gonna help your students and like practice what you're preaching. It's like, you know, when we were saying this earlier about this idea that criticism is something that is feared a lot. And going back to what you're saying, people are afraid of being called out allegedly because you don't know. Um, and you know, a lot of tools that are fundamental and I feel activistic life and education, like knowing how to deal with tension and acknowledge tension and also criticism and the idea that some people feel like when when we talk about those things tension arises like tension was already there but you were so so much like in stark denial that you disacknowledged tension but it was always there but now you're put in a space where your privilege does not suffice to protect you 
from the reality of tension being a pretty much dominant force actually in your emotional ecosystem, particularly in a hierarchy of student prof, right? So I feel a lot of the work is to create more emotional intelligence around like the tools that are mobilizing for true education. And I love what you said about, you know, your relationship with your peers would radicalize you more than your education, because that's, I feel that's a lot of what the hub is. It's the most radical experience I've had at Concordia yet that I didn't have to engineer for myself and by myself. You know, and every day that we do things, like they don't even know this, but they influence so much of my work outside of our group and even my master's, it changed completely. You know, just like I'm going full out in this like creation research project, like, you know, this weird person in the department doing real shit and not even in the right languages, quote unquote. So a lot of that I attribute to having been positively radicalized through peers that are not even in my own program and we're not even at the same tier of education. Now I'm doing my master, Jamila's doing PhD and Jamila and Alban are in a different department. So it's also like looking at your peers in a very non-hierarchical way. It's not just people that live in like, you know, the, the proximity of the geography of my department, but it's also like Concordia wide. And I've mm -hmm. met so many incredible people that again, help for um, my own radicalization positively, you know, through the work that we do as a hub. Yeah, totally. And I think the kind of work you're doing is so critical, yeah, especially in the context of some of these departments that you're working with who, you know, in me peeping in on some of these conversations, I'm like, ooh, y'all have some work to be doing. And I'm glad that, you know, you as a hub at least have some kind of like credibility within oh. the university to be like, hello. Yes, I might be a student, we might be a collection of students, but we have a loud collective voice. Mm -hmm. And here are the areas in which you are failing your students. These are the ways that you could be helping your students, you know, these are ways that you can push your own pedagogy further in a way that like, you know, that aligns with the missions and values that you yourself are stating, but not following through. And I think that is incredibly important and such a important resource for students and faculty alike at Concordia. So thank you for that work. Thank you. Yeah, and one of the advice we should give is to listen to the Do the Kids Know Dot podcast. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and learn Please from listen. having yeah, learn from these topics because it's uh, yeah. it's not easy, but we have to do it. So yeah, that's uh, that's great. That's very beautiful. Thank you, Prakash. It's um, a lot of uh, very useful advice and empowering advice as well. So thank you for sharing all of that with us today. And thank you for having me. It was a pleasure talking with y'all. Stay curious, stay open to critique, be actively involved in the work of learning and unlearning because we all have, we all have work to do. Thank you everyone for joining us. We sure will be using Instagram differently from now on. Speaking of, why not find us there at the DPP Hub? Don't hesitate to reach out to us. Thank you.